story is told of Jim and Mark, who are best friends, and as best friends would have it, they like to enjoy various hobbies together. One of the hobbies that they liked to enjoy was that of hunting, and it was the opening day of hunting season, specifically deer hunting season. And uh, so Jim and Mark were out, and they were driving, looking for a good place to, uh, to set up, and uh, they came across a farm. It was a large farm, and they saw that there were signs posted all over the place, no trespassing, violators will be prosecuted, etc., so they drove up to the gate, and Jim said to Mark, he said, hey, wait here. I'm going to go up, and I'm going to talk to the farmer and see if I can get permission to hunt on his property. So Mark stood back at the gate. Jim went up, knocked on the door. The farmer came out, greeted him, and through a course of the conversation, he asked if it would be okay if they would hunt on his land. And he said, you know, that, that would be fine, but I've got one thing that I'd like to ask you to do for us. He said, you see that old gray, over there, old gray mare over there? Well, you know, she ain't what she used to be. And uh, I thought I'd throw that out there for some of you to see but uh, he said that she's sick and she's dying, and uh, frankly, she's been a great horse. And, uh, you know, we can't, none of us in our family can come to put her to sleep. And so if you wouldn't mind, if you would shoot her and put her down, that'd be great, and you can hunt on the property. And so he was a little reluctant, a little hesitant. He said, well, okay, I'll do it for you. And so they, they walked back, and Jim thought he'd play a joke on his friend Mark, and came back and he was all disgusted and frustrated. He goes, you know, I can't believe a guy have a farm this big and he's so selfish, he won't let anybody hunt on it. He said, you see that horse over there, his? Watch this. Pulls out his rifle, takes aim, boom, shoots it. And as he's shooting, he hears boom, boom behind him and he turned around and Mark goes, hey, nice shot, Jim. I just got two of his cows. Let's get out of here. <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, the story illustrates a very important principle. And that is, you know, there, there is danger in overreacting, you know, making snap judgments. And throughout history, many of God's people have found themselves victims of the snap judgment of others. And that's where we find the Apostle Paul in our continuing study through the book of Acts. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 22, where we learn that despite all the accusations against him and the rumors regarding his ministry, he was a man with a clear conscience before God. A clear conscience before God. In Acts chapter 22, we'll pick it up at verse 30, and we'll continue from there. We read these words. Acts 22, verse 30, we read, But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble, and brought Paul down and set him before them. And Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this very day. It says, And the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And do, and do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? It says, But the bystander said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I wasn't aware, brethren, that he was high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there arose a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. 
And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid. Paul would be torn to pieces by them and order the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him back to the barracks. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. As a reminder, Paul had fulfilled his commitment to return to Jerusalem, bringing with him a financial gift from the predominantly Gentile churches that he was responsible for founding. And his efforts were to try to unite the Jewish believers with the new Gentile believers uh, uh, was met with hostile op- opposition. And eventually, according to the prophecy that we see of Agabus, he was arrested, he was beaten, and ultimately he was saved by the Roman government due primarily to the, to the reason that Paul was a Roman citizen. And uh, and it's at this point and the culmination of our study through the book of Acts, which, believe it or not, we've only got two more messages left. uh, But at this point and from here on out, we'll see that Paul will be imprisoned for Christ's sake. And and the the beauty of all of it is at the end of the day, as we'll see, that we learn that that what he had written to the Romans was true of his life and our life as well, and that is this. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And that's what we'll find throughout this particular episode in the life of the Apostle Paul where he is arrested. And that that it's the arrest of Paul as he's brought before the Roman government that will fulfill the prophecy that we'll see being laid out before us, not only here but previous to that, that one day Paul would have an audience before the very rulers of the great Roman Empire. And so through this arrest, we're going to see God causing all things, including his imprisonment, to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to God's purposes. And so Paul the prisoner, as we see in verse 18 of chapter 23, was a name given to him by the Roman soldiers charged with guarding him. It was a name that Paul often used of himself, a prisoner for Christ. And uh, it's, it's interesting when you look at this because Paul was uh, under military custody which meant that he was chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He had, in essence, a captive audience. Every time they would switch, you know, they would switch who was going to guard him next, he'd have to, they'd have to sit and listen to him talk about the reality of the fact that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, the one who God had promised from the very beginning before the foundation of the world, and that Jesus Christ had come, he had shed his, had shed his blood on the cross for the sins of the world, those who would believe, and he was risen from the dead three days later, and he's alive today. And they had to sit and listen to that message on a regular basis. And there was no place to run and nowhere to hide. It was a wonderful opportunity that Paul had to reach. Even as he says to the Philippians, he said, you know what? Uh, My imprisonment, I mean, the whole praetorian guard got to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. And praise God for my imprisonment before him. So as we look at this, in this passage, we read the first of his many defenses. And in fact, next week when we get together, we're going to see three defenses before Festus and Felix and, 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 uh, and Agrippa. We're going to see the defense that he gave. A ready defense is, is, is the message title because you know we're told, and Peter tells us that each one of us should be ready to give an answer or a defense for the hope that is within us with gentleness and with instruction. And so we'll look at that next time. But in the meantime, we're going to take a look at what it means to have a clear conscience before God. And there's a lot of misunderstanding in our culture today as to what it means to have a clear conscience or what our conscience is all about. And so the first thing that stands out of the four things that we're going to look at is there's a confrontation that we see taking place between this prisoner Paul and the council, the Jewish council that's been brought together. And we see that in verse 1 of chapter 23, if you want to look at that. 
It says, and Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Having discovered that Paul was a Roman citizen by birth, the Roman captain now has two very serious problems that he has to resolve. Number one, he doesn't know what this guy has done wrong. If you remember in the midst of the riot when he was arrested, they were asking, what has this guy done? And one person was saying one thing, somebody else was saying something else. He's like, man, can somebody come to me with some clarity as to what this man is guilty of? He didn't know what he was guilty of, and, and by law, a Roman citizen, as we do in this country, has the right to know what the charges are against him. And so he didn't know what to tell him. So I, I, don't, you know, I don't know what to say, and he has a problem because he doesn't know what the charges are. He can't tell him, and on top of the problem that he hasn't been able to tell Paul, he has a personal problem and that he has to give an account to his superiors as to why he treated this prisoner, a Roman citizen, as he treated him. And so he doesn't have his bases covered either. Man, will somebody tell me what this guy's done wrong because it's pretty obvious he must have done something because so many people doesn't like him. You know, and it's like that's the logic of the snap judgment. It's pretty obvious he must have did something wrong because all these people hate him and they want him to die. But it's the same logic that sent the Lord Jesus Christ to the cross too. When the mob was yelling away with him as it yelled away with Paul, there was no reasoning, there was no charges, there was no guilt whatsoever. And, and yet at the same time, they wanted him to be crucified. They shouted away with him, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate tried his best to get out of it. It's like, what has he done wrong? I, I don't know what, 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 what's going on here. And the same thing has happened to the Apostle Paul. And I think it's a fascinating parallel as to the, to the suffering that Paul endured that was very similar to the suffering of that of his Savior, where he was accused without merit, where he was, in many cases, persecuted and tried and, 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 and thrown before the wolves, so to speak. Uh, you know, all that had happened to him were, were, was very similar to that which was hap what happened to our Lord. And so when we look at this, we see that there, there must be some way uh, of ascertaining what it is that he did wrong. And so the Roman captain very wisely decided to bring together the Jewish religious rulers, which was the Sanhedrin. We've talked about them. They're a group of 70 men who were responsible for the religious or spiritual direction of the nation of Israel. And they were to govern themselves under the auspices of the Roman government. The, the Jewish uh, rulers were to take care of business, so to speak, with their own citizens. And anything that was beyond that, the Roman government has to, had to either allow it or say, sorry, you can't do that because we ultimately have the final say. So this Roman captain very wisely and logically brought all these people together, the Sanhedrin, and said, hey, you know what? Find out what this guy's done. And so he brought him before the Sanhedrin and he took a stand off to the side, Claudius, and he was watching to make sure that everything stayed under control or all was within the Roman laws because he was responsible to make sure there was no riot that would break out because his job was on the line. Not even that he cared so much about Paul, but he was a Roman citizen and so there was some type of, there was a bond that was there, but the bottom line was this, hey, tell us what this guy has done so that I can charge him and he'll know and then I'll know and have my bases covered as well and then we can proceed from here. Now notice the defense, and this is actually where his defenses begin. The defense before the Sanhedrin or the, or the Jewish, Jewish ruler started out this way. Paul looking intently, three things stood out as I was going through this passage. Number one was the, the phrase, he was looking intently at them. I like that. And the reason that, that it stood out to me is it's the same phrase, the same words that are used in the book of Acts chapter 1 as we began this study when the disciples were gazing intently or looking intently as Jesus ascended into heaven. The angel said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing intently or looking intently 
the way Jesus ascended because this same Jesus, as he went, he shall come back again. The word gazing intently means that he was, that he was staring at them. He was looking at them, uh, fixing his eyes on them, staring at them. And, and, and the thing that the beauty of all this is this. He was able to look them in the eye. He was able to look them in the eye because he was not guilty of any wrongdoing. He was able to look at them and look them in the eye. And you know, it's a fascinating thing. You know, it's been said that our eyes are the window of our soul. A person of integrity, a man or a woman who has a clear conscience, has nothing to hide. Doesn't need to look away in shame. If you've ever noticed in your own life and you're dealing with other people, particularly maybe those who are smaller, younger than us, you'll notice as uh, they are guilty of something, and you'll ask them, and they're guilty, and they're busted. They are looking everywhere but at you. It's a fascinating understanding of the guilt of the human heart. You know, I know people that can lie right to your face and they'll look right at you without blinking. I mean, that's a possibility. But for the most part, predominantly, what you'll find when you have a clear conscience before God and you address people and you look them right in the eye, that if they're guilty, they're going to look the other way. If you've ever asked somebody the question, hey, how about this, that, and the other thing, and then they start doing this routine... You know, they're looking for help. You know what I'm saying? They are looking for help. And, uh, and, and the reality of all of this is that Paul was a man with a perfectly clear or good conscience before God up to that very moment in time, which I like because he, he recognized his frailty as well as a human being. And he, say, you know, he wasn't saying, hey, I'll never do anything wrong. I can never make a mistake. But he understood one thing. Up to this moment in time, I can look you in the eye and I can tell you this. I haven't done anything wrong. Look them in the eye. And he also calls them brethren, which is fascinating because no doubt Paul had known some of these men from his, what I would call his B.C. days, or before coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul was a Pharisee. Uh, we know that he was uh, under the tutelage of Gamaliel, uh, Gamaliel. And Gamaliel, you know, as a fellow student, some of these guys sitting on this council were probably people that he had studied with. Some of them may have even been friends from his, his previous life uh, before Christ. And so as he gazed intently, he looked at each one of them and stared them in the face and said, Hey, you know what? I, you know me and I know you. And, I, you know, and it's like, you know, don't try to pull anything over here. And he called them brethren. He didn't call them a traditional greeting would have been rulers and elders of the people or brethren and fathers. He called them brethren. And he placed himself uh, by saying that on a more informal basis, almost equal to the same level, he was not intimidated by what was going on. And we'll see throughout this particular passage, you know, when you know that the Lord is with you, there is no one that you need to fear. There is nobody you need to fear. Because it's like a story I heard about, you know, a young child who continued to be harassed in school. And, uh, you, oh, this is an even better one. No, I forget that one. Hey, you, uh, I don't know if it's better or not. You be the judge. I hate when people say that. They say, oh, I got this really funny story. I go, well, you know, tell it and we'll decide. But, um, but have, you, have, you seen, have you seen the story, uh, the uh, commercial with the little guy? He's a little guy. gets on the bus to go to school. And he's getting harassed by all the bullies that are on there. And, and he's like, they're yelling at him. He's walking down. His head's down. You know, he's kind of fearful. What's going to happen? And he finds this empty seat. And the biggest dude you'll ever see is sitting in a seat next to him. And he looks over at him, this kid looks at him and says, Hi, I'm new. Do you want to be my friend? 
And that's this look. He's got this greatest look on his face like, oh, yeah, I'd love to have you as a friend, you know. And just kind of follow me, walk around with me. And see, that's, I mean, that's my picture of, of what it's like to have the Lord Jesus Christ as your friend. He said, I'm your friend. I call you friends. I've disclosed to you everything that my Father has given to me to share with you. You're my friend. And we can walk in confidence. And we can walk in, in, in uh, understanding that he is always with us. You know, be not afraid, for I'm by your side. You know, God is always with us. He's our friend that follows us. The Lord Jesus Christ is our friend. And we'll see in the life of the Apostle Paul that he's there beside us all along the way. What a great truth that is. And so he's standing there going, brethren, I can look you in the eye. I got a clear conscience before God. And I know the Lord's with me on this one. Regardless of what you choose to do and how this all turns out, I have a clear conscience before God. He says he has lived his life. The word lived has to do with that of a citizen or it has to do with politics. Up until now, uh, you know, he's lived a life that was, was right before God. And what's interesting as we go through this, he says he has a good conscience. You know, conscience is probably one of the most, it, it's, it's one of Paul's favorite words and one of the most confused words in the English language. You know, in, in Paul's writings, he uses this word 21 different times in his letters. The definition simply is this, to know with or to know together. Conscience is the inner judge or witness. An inner judge or witness that approves when we do what is right and disapproves when we do that which is wrong according to Romans 2 verse 15. And, and the important thing to understand is conscience doesn't set the standard. It only applies the standard, in which, the standard which we have. It doesn't set the standard. It applies the standard. Let me give you an example. Paul's conscience had once permitted him to persecute Christians. Follow that? So he can still say before God, I have a perfectly good and clear conscience... Because I lived up to the light that I had at that time. And even though, as in hindsight or retrospect, what I did turned out to be wrong, and I, I came to recognize that, at the time that I was doing it, I didn't violate my conscience or the standard that was within me because I believed that what I was doing was right. It applies the standard. It doesn't set the standard. And this is really important. And you're going to see why in a second. Because there is a lot of confusion as to what that standard should be or how it should be applied. Uh, and let me give you an example. The conscience of a thief would bother him if he told the truth about fellow thieves. Follow that? I've heard and seen people who are guilty of breaking the law say, hey, you know what? I'm not going to turn in my buddy. Or, you know, there's honor, as it said, there's honor among thieves. I'm not going to turn in my friend. I'm not going to give evidence to the, about that person. I'm not going to violate my conscience, even though the standard that is set, you know, is one that is wrong. And, and you can be just as guilty of breaking that standard or feeling guilty in your conscience about turning in another person who's guilty as much as a Christian could feel guilty about violating the standard that is set as far as God is concerned and the Holy Spirit living within us. Let me explain to you by using some of the, 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 uh, the words that are used or some of the descriptions of conscience that's used throughout the Bible, and I think it will give us a good overview. First, it's important to note that Paul's good conscience before God doesn't mean, as I mentioned, all of his actions had always been right. It just means that he felt uh, no guilt for anything he had done up to that point in spite of the accusations that have been brought before him that he knows that he wasn't guilty before God. He knows that. Anything he had done in spite of the accusations, he believed that what he was doing was right. 
So conscience is neither the voice of God nor is it infallible. It's only one of many ways that God gets his truth to people. Follow that? It isn't the, the tiebreaker. You know, it's not infallible and it's not the voice of God. So a conscience uninformed by biblical truth will not necessarily pass accurate judgments. Before coming to faith, and, and as I mentioned, in Christ, Paul's conscience allowed him to do that which clearly turned out to be wrong before God. So the words that he used for conscience are, he says that, you know, we can be guilty uh, from, a, from a negative standpoint. We can be guilty of a weak conscience. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 8, you'll see very, uh, many illustrations of how we can violate our conscience by doing that which that, that our conscience doesn't allow us to do. In that particular case, it was talking about eating meat that was, uh, that was sacrificed to idols. So he was talking about that, you know, if you violated your conscience or that you felt it was wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols because of the background, specifically the Jewish background that you had that prohibited eating meat sacrificed to idols, and then you had come to faith in Christ and the grace of God would allow you to participate in that, if it still violated your conscience to do that, then he says, well, then don't do it. For a Gentile who didn't know anything about it was thinking, man, this is a great place to buy meat because we're getting great deals on meat per pound, man, what a deal. And they didn't have that background, so they, it didn't violate their conscience to go and grab some of that meat sacrificed to idols. They went, who cares? You know, if people are stupid enough to waste meat and sacrifice it to an idol or a god that doesn't exist, and they want to sell it cheap, then we'll take it, go home, and we're going to have a huge, a huge barbecue. You know, hey, this is great. And, and so they struggled with, well, but if your, your conscience is weak, it can also become wounded. And, and he was talking about the fact that you can wound the conscience of those around you by doing that which is offensive to them. And so, basically, Christian liberty was, look, you know what? If you're with people and it offends them because the background that they had and, and, and where they've come from and they're struggling with whether to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and you know what? And you know there's no problem with it, but you're with them and it's going to cause a problem or wound their conscience, then in Christian liberty, just don't do it. You know, have your barbecue away from that and with people that aren't offended by it. It's no big deal. And so he warns about being weak and wounded and also a defiled and evil conscience, Talking about the fact that, you know, we can, we can become, uh, our conscience can become wounded and that we are continually warned of that which we shouldn't do. We continue to do it. It becomes defiled. It doesn't give you clear information anymore. It becomes evil. And the worst conscience that's mentioned in Scripture is that of a seared or branded conscience. And our conscience becomes seared or branded by continuing to do that which is wrong before God... Though our conscience says not to do it, we continue to do it to the point where now our conscience is no longer a factor in the decision. In fact, things can become so upside down. I'll give me an example. I talked to a friend not too long ago, and, and this was the gist of the conversation as it relates to the problem of our conscience becoming seared. He's a man that I, I know because of our history that at some point in time it had, was born again. He put his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing that he was a sinner according to the word of God. He turned from sin. He turned to God. He trusted in Jesus Christ as a Savior, believing that he died for him, rose again from the dead. The Bible says he was born again. He's a child of God, those who believe in his name. So now, as years have gone by, he started to get involved in things that he shouldn't have gotten involved in. As his conscience, the Holy Spirit warned him that what he was doing was wrong. He would have to come to that crossroad in every one of our lives where we know that, hey, we're at a crossroad. And the Word of God is telling me not to do this. The Spirit of God living within me as a believer is telling me not to do it. You know, every, all the evidence around me is telling me this is the wrong thing to do, and yet I choose to 
disobey God, not heed his voice, and do what I want to do. Now we get so far down this road that the Bible says as we continue to participate in this behavior, our conscience becomes seared or branded or so callous that we no longer have our conscience as a guide toward our behavior. He's so far down this road in his relationship with someone other than his wife. Here's what he told me. He says, I feel guilty about cheating on my girlfriend with my wife. And he has left his wife and his three children. How did it happen? I just described it. As God warned him, and he continued to make that choice, and he continued to participate in that behavior, he got so far removed from God and his truth and the word of God that now he feels guilty. His conscience now feels guilty about cheating on his girlfriend with his wife. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. And we see it regularly with people who have chosen to do what has no biblical foundation, but they do it because there's something within them that wants to do what they want to do. And you can get so far away that you continue to do it, and your conscience then is actually what it is. It's turned upside down. It also explains how people commit some of the most horrendous acts against others with no sense of guilt or remorse. See, people who have a conscience that is sensitive towards right and wrong and sensitive towards God, you know, oftentimes we're, we're just caught off guard by the evil of others. How can someone do this? Well, as I just mentioned, if you're doing it believing what you're doing is right, how can someone fly an airplane into a building and then say, but we're doing it in the name of God, our understanding of God? They could have a clear conscience, but it doesn't make their act right before God or man, but yet believe what they're doing is right. How can a man feel so guilty about cheating on his girlfriend with his wife because his conscience is upside down and he doesn't even begin to understand how it got to that point. And the message in all of this is this. Hey, you know what? If you want to live a life that has a clear conscience before God and God continues to warn you of choices that you're making and you continue to reject the warning of God and continue to do what you want to do, you are in danger one day of having a conscience like that that is so seared or branded by sin that you don't even heed God's warnings anymore because you can't hear them. And the action that we take is devastating before God at that point in our life. A weak, wounded, defiled, evil conscience is, is, is clearly taught to us all throughout Scripture. On the other hand, the Bible also commends a conscience that is good, that is blameless, and that is clear. A conscience that is good, blameless, and clear. Such a spiritually healthy conscience results from the forgiveness of sin based on the atoning work of Christ. If you read Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 and 10, 22, you'll see that our conscience is redeemed, it is clear, it is atoned for by the blood of Christ. When you and I come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our conscience is then made right or sensitive to the things of God. It was when the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins, sins believing in him as a Savior that at that time he was washed or his conscience was made alive to the things of God. And then he looked at himself and went, you know what? <laughs> I'm the foremost sinner. I mean, I persecuted the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was Jesus said, 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And he recognized for the first time in his life that he was sinning and assaulting the very Savior of God. And then he had a very clear understanding of who he was, the chief sinner, foremost sinner before God. You know, as we look at this, a good, blameless, clear conscience is informed by the standards of God's Word. God's Word becomes the standard that is set, and then our conscience applies that standard. See how that works? We now have God's standard is what's set. Our conscience within us applies that standard. That's why a person who is genuinely born again cannot continue to live in sin and violate the standard of God's word that is set without knowingly choosing to rebel against God. A believer does not sin in ignorance. A believer sins in rebellion. Because the Spirit of God lives within us, testifying us of the truth of God's Word, reminding us of the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as we study the Word of God, reminds us of what we just learned in Scripture, and then says, hey, you shouldn't be doing this, and if you're born again, the only way you can continue to do what's wrong before God is just simply rebel against Him and turn from His voice and run as fast as you can. See, so this whole idea of having a good, blameless, clear conscience, I think that would be uh, the best illustration would be that of comparing it to a window that lets in light. If the window is clean and clear, the light is fully visible. The Word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That as our window, our conscience is clear before God, we allow the truth of God's Word to illuminate our soul. And at that point, it exposes that which is wrong before God and commends that which we are doing that's right before God. And so here's the question that you have to ask yourself is this. Paul had persecuted the church and had even caused innocent people to die. So it goes back to how could he claim to have had a good conscience? And the answer is simple. He lived up to the light that he had up to that moment in time. And when God revealed more light to him, and when he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and God continued to reveal more and more light to him, he lived up to the light that God had had given him. And so God sets a standard... His conscience applied that which he knew the standard was. And he could stand intently staring at people, looking them in the eye and say, you know what, I haven't done anything wrong. I've lived up to this point, this day in my life with a clear conscience. And, and he implies that, you know what, and if I ever take my eyes off the Lord, if I ever take my, my, my mind out of his word, that, you know what, I can be guilty of a seared or branded conscience that I've warned others about. But I'm telling you today, I've lived a life perfectly clear conscience before God. Which brings me to this question before we look at the next point, and that's this. How's your conscience before God? Are you living a life of a perfectly good conscience before God? Are you in danger of becoming, as I I had a Bible study this past week, and I told the guys that I was meeting with, I said, hey, listen, you know what? You need to turn from sin and turn to God. You need to repent of things that you're doing. If God illuminates in your life that some of the things that you're doing are wrong, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Said, And the bottom line is it also helped to prevent you from becoming an illustration in one of my future Bible studies. So there is that aspect of things too. But, you know, you do want to do what's right because it's the right thing to do. But, you know, I sure hate to be using someone else that I know as another illustration. But the reality of it is this. Are you living a life with a, a, do you have a clear conscience before God? And see, right now, if you're struggling and knowing in your heart that you don't, then that's God gently warning you 
to turn from sin and to turn to God. To confess your sin because He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You know, it's never too late to do right before God. It's never too late to turn from wrong and to do what's right. A perfectly clear conscience before God. Now, that statement that he made, hey, that I've lived a life of a perfectly clear conscience before God, you know, led to um, what I would call a slight conflict between him and, um, and, and the people that were listening to him. And the conflict was very simple. If we look at verses... Um, 2 through 5, it says, And the high priest Ananias commanded those beside him to strike him on the mouth. Okay, well, I'm sensing a little conflict here. And Ananias, the high priest, uses the word strike him, depicts more than just a slap. It's the same word that refers in Acts 21, 32 to beating up Paul before the crowd and of the Roman soldiers beating on Jesus. So he didn't just say smack him in the face one time because of what he just said. Basically, he used the words, you know what, beat the pulp out of him. I mean, just pound him. And that's what they were doing. They were pounding him. And uh, this gets a reaction from Paul. And I think it's a classic case of righteous indignation. He looks at him and says, you know what? You're a whitewashed wall. God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And, he's gonna, and you're sitting there trying me according to the law. And in violation of the law, you order me to be struck. Isn't that interesting? You're a whitewashed wall. Jesus used the same phrase to describe these same religious leaders at one point in his ministry where he said, man, you know what? You are all cleaned up on the outside, but you are filthy, dirt, and rotten within. See, the reason they whitewashed, they would whitewash tombs so that you didn't come in contact with a grave and not know it because if you came in contact with any grave or death, then you would be ceremonial, unclean, and you have to go through a ritual to get clean again. And so what they would do is they'd go to the, to the graveyards and they would whitewash or paint white all the tombstones so you couldn't walk through an area and bump into something that was defiled because you could clearly see it. And all that Jesus used, the word picture, was this. Hey, you look out in the cemetery, look how nice and clean it all is, but you know what? It's filled with dirty, rotten bones. And Paul said, you're whitewashed. You're standing here. You're a hypocrite. You are trying me by the law, and you violate it in what you do. You know what? You're just dirty before God, and God's going to strike you dead. Well, that's interesting. Certainly isn't a man who seems intimidated or afraid to stand on truth. Certainly is a man who just cowered under the, you know, the persecution of the opposition. He just told it the way it was. Hey, you know what? You're dirty. You are dirty before God. You're whitewashed. And it reminds me of this principle that has to always be true of every believer's life, and that is this. Our public life and our private life better be the same. It had better be the same. What you are behind closed doors and the privacy of your home better be who you are in public because otherwise the same rebuke is true of you and me. You are you are dirty within, and you're putting on an image up front, and you know what? God's not mocked nor pleased by it. But if we have a clear conscience before God, we can say, hey, who I am in private is who I am in public, and my conscience is clear before God. Is that true of you? Is that true of you? Side note, though, it's interesting, historically, we look back on this, and when the Jews revolted against Rome in the year 66 A.D., Ananias had to run and flee for his life because he had become so sympathetic to the Romans that the Jewish people hated him, and they went after him, and he hid in the aqueduct system uh, of Herod's aqueduct. They found him and killed him. And so, I guess that was kind of prophetic, wasn't it? 
God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and then violate it yourself? Now, here's a problem, though. The bystander said, do you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I wasn't aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He didn't know this guy was the high priest. Well, how did he know? Well, it was an assembly that was brought together quickly by the Romans and said, hey, gather together. we got this guy. Figure out what's wrong with him. So he probably wasn't dressed in a ceremonial garb. It wasn't a, an official presiding. So, and Paul hadn't been around. We know that he's been gone for several years out of Jerusalem. He's come back. He doesn't really know who the high priest is. And so he's saying, hey, I didn't know it. I didn't know he was a high priest. But you'll notice he never apologized to the high priest, although he respected the office that God had established. And there's a fine line between the two. And the principle that we learn from this is all, even those in authority, must be measured against God's standard, the very word of God. Respecting, submitting to authority does not mean blind obedience. Respecting and submitting to authority does not mean we simply do what those in authority tell us to do without measuring their character and their conduct against the very word of God. And what we find in authority positions are people who manipulate their authority by saying, who do you think you are that you can question or challenge me because I am the high priest? There is no one who's been given authority that hasn't been given it in light of the word of God, the standard that God has set. It was Paul who said to the Bereans, hey, they're more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica because, you know what, everything that I spoke to them they checked to see whether what I was saying was true by the word of God. Even the authority of the apostle Paul, the great apostle, was challenged by those in Berea versus the word of God to make sure that what he was telling them was true according to God's word and that the message was accurate. So we put it together this way by saying this. There is no king, no president, no governor, no senator, no congressman, no judge, no police officer, no boss, no coach, no teacher, no pastor, no elder, no husband, no father, no mother is above the standard set forth for authority by the word of God. We respect those who God has placed in authority, but it doesn't mean we blindly obey without checking what they say against the word of God. So never use your position of authority to sin before God and manipulate others because you will never be a person then who can say that they have a clear conscience before God. God's word is the standard. So if you're in a position of authority, my encouragement to you is very simple. Submit to God's authority and his word in your life, and you won't have to worry about manipulating others. Okay, third thing that stands out from this passage as we go through it is what I'm going to call, um, well, let's take a look at it from the standpoint of a conquest as far as the Apostle Paul is concerned. There's a conquest that takes place, and the conquest basically is this. Paul recognizes in verse 6 that he's in big trouble. Because he is not going to get a fair trial before these people. And it doesn't take long to figure that out. I mean, if you got the person that's supposed to uphold the highest standard, the word of God, telling somebody, some goon, to beat the pulp out of you, then you, you know we got a problem here as far as a, fra- a fair trial is concerned. 
So Paul has already kind of got a good hard look at his audience. He, know who, he knows who's there. He knows there are people that had been friends of his before. He knows he's got a relationship with them. So he went right to those who were his friends, those who were ide- uh, from an ideological and theological position the same to him. And notice what he does in verse 6. This is brilliant. He says, but perceiving that one part were Sadducees, the other Pharisees, and I guess he perceived it because they probably weren't sitting next to each other. You know, they had this side over here and this side over here. And, you know, and he was looking at it going, oh, this is fascinating. Paul began crying out in the council. Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. So he looks at his audience and he's got this group, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he knows that they're divided already over theological issues, specifically the issues of whether there's angels, whether there's a resurrection of the dead, whether there's a spiritual world whatsoever. He, he knows that they're divided over this. So he looks at him and says, hey, he said, you know what, I got a problem here. And it's all about the resurrection. They came to bring, bring them together, find out what the charges were against them. He says, you know what I'm on trial for? For believing in the resurrection of the dead. You know what I'm on trial for? I'm on trial for believing that there is a resurrection of the dead. John chapter 11, if you remember the story of Martha and Mary, Jesus said, do you believe that your brother will be raised one day? And she said, certainly. I believe that he'll be raised on the resurrection on that last day. Jesus said, no, you know, I am the resurrection and the life. Used it as a segue to talk about the fact that he is the resurrection and the life and that all should have faith and trust in him. And the segue here that Paul uses this, this is brilliant. He says, man, you know what? I'm never going to get a fair trial before these people. I see that there's a group of people over here who are going to be on my side. As soon as I bring up this next issue, they are trying me for believing in the resurrection of the dead. This whole group went, what? What? You're trying them for what? And he goes on, and this is what explains. It says, for, for the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there arose a great uproar. Beautiful. This is beautiful. Their road, man, they were fighting among themselves. And now the Roman, now remember the Roman soldiers sitting there watching all this going, these people are crazy. It's like, what has this guy done wrong? I mean, one half of this group saying he hasn't done anything wrong. The other half of the group saying, yeah, he believes in the resurrection. And it's like this big battle going on. It says there arose a great uproar. I like that. No small uproar. Remember, there was no small uproar in Ephesus either when 25,000 people went crazy. These people were going crazy. And some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up, began to argue heatedly. We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose the spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, think about it, the commander, the Roman commander standing there watching all this. He was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them, ordered the troops to go down and take him away by force, bring him back to protect him in the barracks. I mean, it's kind of like less filling, tastes great. You know, they were just like, and he's, he's in the middle, man, and they're tearing him apart. You know, it's like resurrection, no resurrection, angels, no angels. And this is like, you know, and the guy's going, what? Go, go get him. Go get him. And I guarantee if they would have listened to him anymore, he would have opened the door for him to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, the one promised by God. You believe in the resurrection, don't you? Well, then why should it be so difficult that you would believe that God's Savior could be raised from the dead? I'm here to declare to you, three days after he died on the cross, he rose from the dead according to scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, the foundation of the Christian faith is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. If he has not raised from the dead, we are all to be pitied. But since he's alive, we have a risen Savior. Isn't that awesome? This is beautiful, man. This is, I mean, it was just, it was brilliant. Paul was a brilliant man. And, and as this was going back and forth, it wasn't politics as usual. And the thing that saddens me about all of this is the Sanhedrin was gathered together again to hear the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
They refused to believe at the trial of Jesus himself. They refused to believe every time that they were brought together. They made a conscious decision to, to, to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, to reject him as Savior. And you know, and many people today make a conscious decision to do the same. And God holds us accountable for the choices that we make in life. Can you say that you have a clear conscience before God when the gospel message has been brought to you? You know that you're guilty of sin. You know that, you know what, you fall short of the standard of God, which is perfection. And God, his conscience that he's given you, that conscience says, you know, what's being said is right. That God loved you anyway, and he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth to die upon a cross. That whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Three days later, he raised him from the dead. He is alive today as the living Savior of the world for those who believe. Do you have a clear conscience before God because you have received his message? Or have you called God a liar? The blasphemy of the Spirit, the only sin that's unforgivable, is calling God a liar when it comes to the claims of Christ. There is no other sin that God cannot forgive, but he cannot forgive those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And the last thing is, and what we'll close on is, the comfort that we see in verse 11 basically is threefold. It had to be one of the darkest nights of Paul's life. If you think about it, for years, for years he had prayed for and hoped for, uh, hoped for a fruitful witness in Jerusalem. Came back and he gave them the money that was raised from the Gentile churches to unite the church together in a common cause, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came back together and here his own people again rejected him as his own people, as his own people rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. He was brought before them. He was tried on charges that had no merit whatsoever. His hopes of convincing his people or the leadership of his people that the claims of Christ were true have just gone up in smoke. The Roman government has come and they have protected him by taking him to Fort Antonio, which is a fortress outside the temple, and protected him against his own people who wanted to kill him, even though all he was there to do was tell the truth. And the following night we're told in verse 11, but on the night immediately, and the reason I use but is because it's a contrast. You contrast the chaos of the night before to what is about to take place on the following night. You contrast the anger and the hatred and the rejection of the message, and now you contrast it to what we're about to see taking place in verse 11. But we're told that on the following night, immediately, immediately following that incident, the Lord stood at his side. Some of us struggle with how to interpret the Bible, and let me just share with you a very simple rule of interpretation. If the literal makes sense, that's what it means. No like or as or anything. It just says, and the Lord stood by his side. There's no reason to doubt or question that it doesn't mean that Jesus Christ himself, the resurrected Savior, came and stood at his side. There's precedent for it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you go back and look, we're told that as they were thrown into the fiery furnace and those who threw them in looked inside, it says there is appearance of four people. Not just three. And we're told that the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, stood with them throughout their ordeal. And he says to them, he says to Paul, and he tells them very simply, take courage. Take courage. Be of good cheer. Take courage. Jesus used it often during his earthly ministry. He spoke to the man who, who had palsy and said, take courage. Your sins have been forgiven. He goes to the woman who suffered with a hemorrhage of blood and told her, take courage. 
He shouted to the disciples in the storm in the boat when Peter walked across and began to sink. He said, hey, take courage. He said the same thing in the upper room as he prepared his disciples for the day that he would be arrested, tried, convicted on faulty charges and executed, murdered on the cross. He said, don't worry about it. Take courage. You know, that promise of God still applies to this day. For lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. You take courage. I am beside you. And we need to know that. We need to remember that. We need never to forget that. In those days of doubt, in those days of fear, in those days of frustration, do you forget the word of God and the promise of God that I am with you always? Do not be afraid. Take courage. I'm offering it to you. Take it. Do you want it or not? Take courage. And it's not even an option. It's a command. You know, I think about that in, in line of, um, you know, the commercial I just shared with you, you know, the guy who has now his best friends, the biggest dude in school, and, you know, he can take courage that everywhere he goes, this guy's going to be with him. No one's going to mess with him. You know, I think about it in light of something like tennis, you know, where if you had a doubles partner like, you know, Steffi Graf or Andre Agassi or Pete Sampras or whatever it is, you'd be like, hey, you know what? Don't worry about it. I got your back covered. You know, I like that. You know, it's like, take courage. I'm right there beside you. Beautiful. That's great. And it was a non-football illustration, too. Took me a while to come up with it, but take courage. And you know what? And he commended him as well. Do you notice that? There was some question or doubt in our mind whether Paul should have ever gone to Jerusalem. Let me tell you something. He was commended for his witness before the Sanhedrin and before those who God had brought together. And, And what I want to share with you about this is this. We are not held responsible before God for how others respond to God's message that we share. Isn't that great? You and I are now held, we're not held responsible by God for the response of those God brings in our life that we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with. Thank God for that. But don't ever forget, we're held responsible to share the message. We're held responsible to share the message. And we will give an account one day for whether we were faithful in carrying out that responsibility. Going to all the world, Baptize all nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We cannot save anyone. And we're not held responsible for the rejection of the gospel by others. We are, however, responsible to tell others. And the words that were spoken at the empty tomb are just as real today as they were then when we were told to come and see that the tomb is empty, come and see that he has risen just as he said, and now go tell others. That has never changed. That is our mission. That is our purpose. That is the work that we are to finish for Christ's sake. We can have confidence. It was a measure of confidence. And notice the confidence that he has. Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed, I commend you for what you did. As you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, let me tell you something. So you must witness at Rome also. Isn't that great? You know what that's telling them? Don't worry about it. You're going to Rome. What you go through between now and then, we're going to talk a little bit about because it's recorded for us, but don't worry about it. You're going to Rome. 
I told you when I called you out on the road to Damascus that you would be my witnesses before the Roman, great Roman government, the empire itself. You're going to Rome and you're going to do what I have called you to do. You are going to finish the work that has been begun. So at the end of the day, when he wrote to Timothy, I have kept the faith, I have fought the good fight, I have completed the course, I have done what God has called me to do. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you want a clear conscience before God, you have got to be at the same point in your life where one day you can make the same claim, God, everything you called me to do, every gift that you've given me to use, I have used obediently to your service and for your kingdom and to your glory, and I have a clear conscience before God. You know, as we go through the rest of this passage, you'll see that the, uh, that the plot to assassinate Paul was crushed by God himself. Using the nephew of Paul, whom we've never even known he had a sister, yet alone a nephew, and God uses his nephew at a strategic time in Paul's ministry to tell the guard that there is a plot to kill Paul, and they protected him. And listen to this. The guy is ushered out of town, not as a prisoner, but almost as a celebrity. As we look at this passage, we're told there's 470 soldiers who parade this guy out of town. Is that awesome? Only God can do that. In closing, Paderewski, famous composer, pianist, was scheduled to perform at a great concert hall in America. It was an evening to remember. You know, one of those black tux, long evening gown affairs, high society extravaganza. In the audience that evening sat a mother with her fidgety nine-year-old son. Weary of uh, waiting for the concert to begin, he began to squirm constantly in his seat. Her mother hoped that her boy would be encouraged to practice the piano once he heard the immortal Paderewski. That's why, against his wishes, he was there. When his mother turned to talk with some friends, the impatient boy could sit no longer. He slipped away from her side, strangely drawn to the ebony concert Grand Steinway and its leather-tufted stool on the huge stage flooded with brilliant lights. And he slipped up to the front, largely ignored by the sophisticated audience. The boy sat down at the stool, staring wide-eyed at the black and white keys. He placed his small, trembling fingers on the creek keys, and he began to play chopsticks. The roar of the crowd quickly ceased as hundreds of frowning faces turned in his direction. Irritated and embarrassed, they began to shout at this bold youngster. Backstage, the master, overhearing the sounds, hurriedly grabbed his coat and rushed towards the stage where he found where he stood behind the boy and began to improvise a counter-melody to harmonize with an enhanced chopsticks. As the two of them played together, Paderewski kept whispering in the boy's ears, Keep going. Don't quit. Keep on playing. Don't stop. Do not quit. I thought, wow, what a brilliant man. The same words that Jesus Christ whispers to each one of us who want to be obedient to him. You keep going. Don't stop. Don't let the crowd get to you. Don't let the opposition stop you. Don't let those who are dirty before God hinder you from doing what God has called you to do. Don't let those whitewashed sepulchers stop you. You keep going. You keep trusting me. And man, I'll tell you what. They made beautiful music together. See, the Lord doesn't need any of us, but He chooses to use us anyway. And He is by our side. Do you have a clear conscience today before God? Let the light of God's Word illuminate your soul. If you're dirty, ask God to forgive you. 
because he cleans you up from the inside out. Confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you. Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Are you fearful? Have courage. Take courage. For I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity of the message. We just thank you for the Apostle Paul and his obedience as an example to each and every one of us who should walk in such a way. God, I pray that each and every one of us who have come to know Christ as our Savior by trusting in His death on our behalf and believing in the power of His resurrection, that each and every one of us today can stand before you with a clear conscience right with you. The standard that you set is your very word. The application is the conscience that you give us, the Holy Spirit who also lives and dwells us to help us to continue to know the truth and to make the right choices. God, may we never become men and women who ignore your voice to the point where we become so deceived or seared or branded in our conscience like the man that I mentioned who thinks he's cheating on his girlfriend by being with his wife. God, may that never happen to any of us. We thank you that you're with us. We thank you that you tell us and promise us that, lo, you are with us always, even to the end of this age. Fear not, for I am with you. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.